Welcome to The Mend, a podcast to learn about services and support for victims and survivors of crime, sponsored by the Center for Crime Victim Services here in Vermont. I'm your host, Anna Nassett, and today on the show we have Nikki Sorrell, here to talk about gender-based violence and response in the military. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yes. So this show was created to take a deeper look at services, organizations, and concepts for victims and survivors of crime. We want to acknowledge our healing process and provide resources, not only in our state of Vermont, but throughout the country that could benefit victims of crime as they begin to mend. And today we are going to be looking at kind of a more larger platform. We're going to be looking at Vermont National Guard, but also military response throughout the country. So with this show, we can learn, myself included. We might not always agree with everything we hear, but this is how we learn, and I invite you to join me. I always want to begin with a content warning. Our goal is to create a safe place to discuss topics of healing, but with that in mind, we may occasionally hear a story related to crime, discuss our mental health, or have other sensitive subject matter. We urge you to care for yourself and listen with your own discretion. So as I said today, I'm so excited to have Nikki here. Nikki Sorrell has been working in the Vermont National Guard Sexual Assault Prevention and Response, SAPR, office since January 2020. Oh, I met you right after you started. Yeah, you did. She started as a victim advocate coordinator and became the program manager state sexual assault response coordinator in August of 2021. Nikki has a master's degree in clinical psychology. Before coming to the Guard, she worked in community mental health crisis support programs, interned as a college counselor, and then worked as a therapist. She enjoys working in the SAPR program and feels proud to be part of a team of people who support the members of the Vermont National Guard. Thank you for being here, Nikki. Thank you. So Nikki's a good friend of mine who I'm so excited to have on here. (laughs) Not only is she so incredible in the work she does, but has just been really incredible support in my life. She was the person who came down and sat with me the day of my book launch (laughs) because I couldn't be alone. So that just says a lot about who she is and at her heart and why she's so good at this work that she does. Thank you. I have no problems being a service support animal for anybody. (laughs) You were very good. (laughs) Dolly wasn't quite doing it for me that day. (laughs) So um, I would just love if you could, to the extent you're comfortable, share how you got called into this field of working in gender-based violence. Yeah, Um, it's a long road. I'll make it a shorter story. Um, I honestly always wanted to work with people since I was really young. Um, I am a listener and a watcher. And and, and by that, I mean, I like to just sit back and take in what people are doing. And I've always wondered why we do the things we do and why we are the way we are. And um, so that led me into the field of psychology after a long road determining that. Um, When I got into psychology, again, I started working in crisis centers. I worked with kids for a little while. I worked with adults for a bit. Um, And really just they got my wheels more turning, like why are we the way we are? And a lot of it started to make sense, right, especially working with kids um, in crisis situations and then transitioning to working with adults. It was like you were seeing the pages turn. Mm -hmm. You could see what happens with children and then a direct correlation to what happens later in life. And that was a really fascinating thing to sort of – be learning while I was going to school and then also seeing play out. Um, Gender-based violence specifically, because I saw a lot of it, um, working with people in crisis. Um, And so, you know, with time, I honestly, how I came to the guard specifically was 
I was looking on USA Jobs and there it was. And I said, okay, like this, this is something I can absolutely do. Um, I can't say I ever decided I was going to work specifically with victims of sexual violence. That was never something I thought about specifically. Um, but when it came up in the experience I had had, and of course like working in private therapy um, with folks, a lot of sexual violence coming up, a lot of people's experiences, um, it just, it spoke to me in some way. I, I am also, I definitely look at myself as a, a feminist and this idea that I don't think I could meet a woman in the world who hasn't experienced harassment on some form and sort of that just what that does to a person when you sit and think about it. I just want to, I don't know, support them, be with them, see how I can help, um, if I can make change, if that's even possible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And with the military especially, um, you know, we're going to get into some military response and things like that, but being a more male-dominated, mm. you know, institution, organization, yeah. um, being able to come at that and support women who want to be in that field. Yeah. want to be a guard member, want to serve their country and support them to do that safely. Is that part of what kind of fuels you too? Yeah. I've always been someone who likes to uh, use my voice. Um, <laughs> I, and so the idea of joining the military, I am not a military member, um, but joining the military to work for the military was such an interesting thing of okay, can I work in this capacity? You know, can I work with an 80% male-dominated uh, organization? Military, of course, there's the structure and the rank structure. How am I going to work in that? And I almost looked at it as a challenge. Like, okay, let's see how that's going to work. Mm -hmm. um, because I know how to do the work with people, and I'm always learning and adapting those skills. But working in an organization like the military, that was totally new and foreign. So it was almost like... Um, it was the next step. It was the next challenge, if you will, I guess. Yeah, you like to challenge yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you like to see how you can shake exactly. it up. <laughs> exactly. And how have you found that working with specifically the Vermont National Guard? Honestly, my mind has been blown. Um, I was very hesitant to take the job offer initially because while I like a challenge, I was also like, man, in, in six months, am I going to be tearing my hair out because I can't say the things I want to say and do the things I want to do? Um, and I have not had that experience at all. I feel like, especially when uh, it comes to people who have experienced violence, the Vermont National Guard uh, is doing a lot of work to look at themselves honestly mm -hmm. and how can we be better. Um, and there's a lot, I, I say this often in every training I give, I, there, we have about 3,000 Guard members and there are so many wonderful people in our organization. It is predominantly filled with really wonderful people doing really wonderful work and people who want to do the right thing. Yeah, there's issues, there's problem people, um, but more than that, we, ha we are just full of people who want to do the right thing. So I've been able to um, move in a way that feels authentic mm -hmm. to the work, um, bring issues up to leadership that are uh, validated and then okay what what do we do next and and I'm offered a seat at that table to decide what to do next um, and the next steps are happening um, yeah. we're doing things that other states are not doing to fix some of these issues which is really empowering and when I meet with folks and I see something and I bring that to leadership it's it's not looked at as okay yeah sure and let's just 
but what else? It's looked at as, oh, wow, let's talk more about that. Let's get into that. Yeah. And that's really empowering. Yeah. I mean, from just my experience, because I've done some work with the yeah. Vermont National Guard, like your leadership appears to not just, they're not perf- having a performative seat at the table. Absolutely. They're actually giving a seat. They're asking for you to be at the table and taking your recommendations. Absolutely. And that's such a difference. You know, we, we've all been in those places where we're like, okay, you're just putting me here because you have to check that box, yep. not because you actually want to like hear what I have to say, take it into account and make change. And that's just what I've seen in my experience. Absolutely. And I would say there's probably a time where that might not have been the case for folks. Yeah. Um, my experience has definitely been different, and I'm yeah really glad for that. I well, think there's been a huge shift in the last few years. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, when we look at these movements as a whole around gender-based violence, around victims' rights, around domestic and sexual violence, all of those things, like, we're still so young in it. Yeah. I mean... So young, yeah, like from the seventies, absolutely. Um, and you know, it's easy for us to go like, okay, but there's still all these problems, all these problems, all these problems. But we also have to look at like how much is happening and how quickly it actually has happened. Absolutely. So we can push for the change and keep pushing, but also celebrate those victories. Absolutely. And I think where the military is concerned, change is slow for everybody, which is exactly what you're saying. And I would say change is even a little bit slower for the military. Absolutely. Maybe more than a little bit slower. Maybe more than a little bit slower. <laughs> but the but I think at the root of it, like things are changing and that's the positive yeah. side of it. Yeah. Because it's also government. Government is slow. Oh God, government's so slow. So slow. <laughs> um so I do, I think we're going to keep weaving those conversations in, but just for our listeners who don't know, I probably should have asked this earlier, but can you just tell people what SAPR is, how it works, and a little bit of some of those terms like unrestricted, restricted, just just so people have an education of how the system works in the military versus the civilian world. Sure. So SAPR, the Sexual Assault Response and Prevention Program, every branch of the military has the SAPR program. It is Department of Defense mandated, pushed down by Congress. There are policies, rules, everything else that we follow that gets pushed down from the higher levels of government, and each branch of the military has the program and um, follows specific guidelines. And then one of the big ones is the reporting types. In the SAPR program, there is the ability to report a sexual assault as a restricted report, which means there's no investigation, but that person coming to report can seek uh, mental health services. Uh, They get victim advocacy. We have really wonderful victim advocates in our state. Um, They get support uh, and information. We connect them with community resources. We can assist them in going to the, the hospital if they need to do that. Um, We have free legal services that we can offer uh, members who come forward to report. So a a restricted report doesn't open an investigation, but they get those support services. Then there's an unrestricted report, which is the other type. Um, And that type gets those same services. There's a few more services in addition to that um, because it does open an investigation. So more people are aware of it. Um, And investigations in the guard Active duty bases, an investigation is going to be done internally with their local military um, police investigation organizations. For the Guard, um, we are very different than active duty bases. We, all of our unrestricted reports first go to local law enforcement. Sometimes they take the report, sometimes they don't. 
Um, sometimes a member says, I don't want to go through civilian courts. Um, if that is the case, that's always the first route is local law enforcement. The second route is utilizing our higher headquarters, um, which is through the National Guard Bureau, they'll issue special investigators that come down or come up from Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. to investigate. Um, so those are the two types of ways we investigate. So the unrestricted opens the investigation. The restricted does not. Yep. Um, and within like your advocates who are in that people can access, can you speak a little bit? Because they are guard members as yeah. well as how somebody can become an advocate. I always, you know, when I first started doing some work with the military, I was kind of blown away. I was like, oh, you have an advocate like in every unit? What? Like, I, yeah. huh? So if you could explain a little how people come into that role. Yeah. So... Uh, again, it's, it's so, sort of by mandate. Uh, each branch of the military does it a little bit different. And of course, at the Guard, we're Air and Army. In the Air, they're mandated to have one victim advocate for the entire wing. Um, right now, there's, of course, an advocate or a coordinator there and two victim advocates. And then in the Army, it goes by uh, battalion. So for those of you who are familiar, you know what that means. But it's just a a grouping within the military. It means that we end up having quite a bit more. So for our organization, we're mandated to have around 22. I don't know if that math is correct. We currently have just over 30, between 30 and 35 credentialed victim advocates. They go through extensive training. Um, our army advocates go through a two-week schooling. Um, our air advocates go through a one-week schooling. But pretty extensive. They do background screenings, um, pretty extensive education. And then we are credentialed through the National Office of Victims Assistance. It's the Department of Defense branch of that. So a national accreditation, and we renew our credentials every two years. So that means we have to constantly get CEU, option, you know, continuing ed units. Yes. Um, a lot and of we're education. we're lucky enough that it's at NOVA, we get to have our fancy I dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, they let me yeah. go to dinner with them every year at a conference, and it's very fun. And fun. It's my favorite night. They're really <laughs> well-educated people. Yeah. Um, and... We have a group of folks that really, truly are passionate about the work, want to better themselves, their units, the people around them, and their families and, the, and, and people in their outside life because they can take it outside as well. Absolutely. And so we just have some really wonderful people, again, doing excellent work. Well, I think it speaks a lot to say you, you need to have 22, but you actually have 30 right now, yeah. which means that many people want to be in this role. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's not like it's an additional role to take on. Yeah. They don't it's, get paid for it. It's yeah. not their main job. Exactly. It's additional duty for sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, one of the things like you just said that, you know, they can take this out in their community as well. And that's something that I think is really important for that sets the guard apart. Right. Yeah. And talking to your leadership before um, General Knight once said to me, he said, you know, the thing that keeps me up at night is worrying what people are doing in their own communities. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's so true, right? Cause this is, you're not there full time. You're there. What is it? Two weeks a year? What is it? I always forget what it is. <laughs> I mean, technically I think the, our, um, typical drilling members, it's two weeks or one week in a month, two weeks a year, but most drilling members will tell you they're there more than that. <laughs> right. Um, but that's, you know, it's a really different thing of being active, you know, mm -hmm. within the guard, but also active community members and does that add complexity to your job? Like as you were just talking about how Sapper works and can go through local and this and that, but how do you, you know, empower people to be good community members as well? And like just kind of the complexities that that can add within this. Yeah, I mean, I think, yes, absolutely adds many complexities. Um, I recently found myself 
talking to General Knight about our trainings and sort of stepping back and looking at the, the point of one of the benefits, I think there's a lot of benefits in being part of the Vermont National Guard, and one of them is they get all this additional training, and a lot of it is sort of annual training. It's required. Um, it's not like most people are super excited to attend their annual training every year, but it is regular education based around um, how to prevent sexual violence, how to uh, prevent suicide, how to support people who are in those places where they are thinking that that might be something they opt for, um, how to support each other. They have all these different trainings um, that our folks attend, and there's not a lot of, not a lot of other places that you're going to work. You're not going to show up to uh, your regular nine to five um, at a bank and get regular, really good education about how to prevent sexual violence, how to support somebody who might be um, thinking suicide's an option for them. Right. Uh, so our folks really have the added benefit of the additional insight that they, they then kind of, like I said, take outside. Um, yeah. They're getting that regular education. They're getting more information on what violence looks like in our state, what it looks like nationally, how can they help support other people. Um, and then, of course, the other complexity is we are not an active duty base, but because we are the military, we're often looked at as something in and of ourselves, that we are self-sustaining, like an mm -hmm. active duty base is. But mm -hmm. we are not. We absolutely have to rely on our local, mil uh, local police departments, um, the local hospitals. Uh, you know, I work quite a bit with the folks throughout the Vermont um, Network for Sexual and Domestic Violence, excuse me, uh, all of their different organizations that are yeah. associated with them throughout the state. We really rely on those advocates as well to support our people um, because we are not all-encompassing. We can't do it all. We don't have those resources. Right. Yeah. yeah. And to clarify, I think most people know with the Vermont Network for Domestic and Sexual Violence is kind of the overarching that all of our different um, advocacy centers in the state fall under. So you are going to work hand in hand with them, yeah. um, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, and I think you, you bring up a good point. Like, I know as a civilian who goes out and works with the military, people are like, oh my gosh, thank goodness, they need so much help. And I always kind of stop people. And I always stop people because of what you just said. Like, there's so much more training. Like, yes, we've shifted and grown in a lot of ways. So there has been a lot of problems. But you are receiving so much more training as a military member than you ever would in civilian life. Mm -hmm. And one of the big difference is, you know, the military has to report out. So if there is an assault, if there is a crime that happens, that's public information. But in our communities, it's not. Yeah. So like we, we look at the military and say, well, look at this, like this horrible thing happened. Yes, but that horrible thing is happening tenfold in our communities. Absolutely. And I think it's important for people to recognize that, that you all are really, and especially the, the Vermont Guard is really pushing for those changes at a really rapid pace. Absolutely. Yeah. And you make make a great point of, yes, it's happening in the guard and it's happening in the community. And our guard members are the community, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're not just living on an active duty post sectioned away from others. Like they are part of this community. They're your neighbor that you're going to go Absolutely. borrow a wet back from. I mean, for <laughs> me, at least. <laughs> Sounds like you've done that recently. Maybe. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's that is the difference. Um, and I just think it's important for people to remember that and yeah. and know that in some ways, because these people have had so much training, 
it, that's a great person to turn to in your community if you've experienced harm. Absolutely. Um, even if they're not an advocate, they've received more than most civilians yeah. have, unless if you're in this field of work. Yeah. Um, which kind of like, how do you prepare your advocates? These 30 people, like you talked about them doing the CEUs and trainings, like how, what is the support looking like for that, um, for them and how they're moving through doing this work? Uh, you know, we stay in pretty close contact. Um, we host annually, which you'll be uh, doing some of our training next month. Uh, every year we host a victim advocate refresher uh, that they're all invited to. Quarterly, we host like one hour sessions for our folks. So it is trying to stay in constant communication, keep them updated on what's going on for uh, within the organization and outside with the understanding that myself and my team, my very small team, do this work full time it's an additional duty for them. So I think it's always trying to balance like, hey, here's a bunch of information. Here's something you can be part of. But I completely understand if you don't have time for it. Yep. And just sort of navigating that with them. Um, yeah, I mean, they get regular education. They have to keep up with their continuing ed units. Um, they, a lot of times, we or not a lot of times, every year we do annual inspections of all the units. And so uh, getting in touch with a couple different folks from each unit that are the advocates there, like what is... When we think about sexual assault, sexual harassment, what does that look like in your unit? What's, what are you seeing? What's happening? Yeah. Um, they're definitely the subject matter experts in what is happening for them um, and what's happening within the units. I'm not out in the units. Right. And so I heavily rely on their interpretations and their insight, which is enormously helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just curious because, you know, these people are also like... They, you know, they're not full time at the guard, right? So, like, what are some of their jobs in the, like, out in the civilian world? Oh gosh. Um, well, we have people. We have someone who's a, a, a serve a land surveyor. We have people. We had someone who worked for Amazon for a while. Um, we have people who work in hospitals, in banks, in I mean, every professional field you yeah, know which working in the trades working is also super schools. cool yeah because these are Teachers. people in our community that have this training yeah. like that's amazing right yeah. and normally you wouldn't have this level of training unless if this was your full-time job yeah unless if you were working for an organization at the network or something like that absolutely so it's a really cool thing that you know when we 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 can look out in the world and go there we never know who's causing harm we can also look out in the world and go we don't know who all the allies are. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty cool. Um, so we've kind of talked about some of this, but how has the response to gender-based violence changed in the military over the last few years? Specifically, I was thinking about how, like, we just had that big shift this year where things are being taken away from, uh, was moved off, help me figure. Away from command. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that, uh, there's been a lot of shifts. So back in 2020, April 2020, I can't remember the exact month. Um, I think many people remember um, the the murder of Specialist Vanessa Guillen. Mm -hmm. And that was down at Fort Hood. There was a suspicion there was what well, was known that she was sexually harassed by the person who ended up killing her. There's suspicion of sexual violence in other ways. And that really ignited the fire um, in her family, which was amazing. Um, and then to Congress, and it's just shifted our program dramatically. About a year after the Fort Hood report came out, so that was the report when um, investigators went in to say, like, what has happened? What has happened here? Because that wasn't the only issue Fort Hood had had. 
um, the Hood report came out and it was concerning for everybody. The Congress elected to do an internal review commission. And so that was in January of 2020. And they went out and talked to every branch of the military. The internal review commission appointed by the president um, was actually, they also spoke to us as well. Um, we are the only state guard that were asked to be part of that conversation, which was really cool. Wow. Um, to find out like, what are you experiencing? What do you think needs to change? Out of, the, out of that, um, they put out 82 recommendations for the SAPR program and um, all 82 were adopted. And so since then, we're only three years past that IRC, um, the Internal Review Commission's findings, and our program has changed immensely. I mean, I've had more policy changes than I can <laughs> count on my hands and toes. Um, there's been a ton of them. So things have shifted dramatically. Some affect active duty far more than us. So taking things out of command, that is something that has affected active duty at the moment. Um, because for us, for instance, when an investigation for sexual assault is done in active duty, it's done by you know, their internal um, investigators. And then outcomes are, not outcomes, but uh, I don't want to go too far down and get in the weeds, <laughs> but commands have a little bit more say in how those play out. Whereas here, when things go to an investigation, they're going through local law enforcement. They're going through the court systems in right. Vermont. Um, so command isn't saying, oh yeah, I think that person did it. I think they didn't do it. Okay, let's let them off. Let's, let's find them guilty. Commands have none of that say. Um, right. So that change is dramatically going to affect active duty and not really going to affect us. Um, but it's a really positive change. Yeah, absolutely. And it's shifting, you know, other things because of that have shifted and will continue to shift. And Yeah. But I'd say, too, like when we, you know, one thing is that change generally doesn't come about because something good happened. Yeah. And like, Isn't that the truth? Like how like brave of her family to push okay. for this. I mean, just really incredibly brave. Amazing. And I mean, I think that's so much of this work is being like, okay, I guess I'll be loud. Yeah, um, the squeaky wheel, right? Yeah, but to also say like, we talked earlier about how like everything is so slow and the government's so slow, right? But like that was pretty fast. Absolutely. Like, that was real fast. Absolutely. Three Shocking. years is not a long time. Yeah. Yeah. To make some really like massive, massive changes that can protect people, save lives, get help, like just all the things. And yeah. it pushed forward some other stuff that wasn't necessarily SAPR related, but stuff that was on other people's agendas. So right now um, we were <clears throat> one of the first few states to stand up the uh, prevention team. So mm -hmm. all all branches of the, or is it all branches? Yes, all branches of the military are now getting um, prevention workforces. Yep. And it was an idea that was already on the table and it had been thought about for a while. And I strongly believe that with everything that came out and all the changes, it, they were easily able to push it in and fund it. Um, so we have that those resources available now, yeah. which is really important. Which is so important. Like we always have to have that response to if something happens, but we have to, and I mean, we've been seeing this more and more over the last couple of years, like where's the prevention side? How do we prevent yeah. these things from happening? How do we educate people on behavior and consent and all of these different things to prevent, you know, we all want to be out of a job. Yeah. Right? right. <laughs> Probably not going to happen, Absolutely. but. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I think that kind of leads to like my, some of my closing questions. Like, what, 
what are some of the changes and shifts you'd like to continue to see um, in this in your work? Yeah, um, man, that's a question I could sit on and ruminate for a while. What else do I want to see? I mean, I would just want to see, continue to see the growth within our organization, the openness within our organization. Um, I've brought a couple new in initiatives to the table in the last year, year and a half, um, and everything has been welcomed with open arms. So we're changing the way we do training, and that's been a really positive change. So to continue to be able to uh, switch that up and, ch and make that more interesting for folks. Um, yeah, the po I just want to see things moving in the trajectory they're moving, I would say. Um, I could name specific things, but it, it doesn't really matter. It just... Let's just keep growing and learning and recognizing that we're not. We may be doing okay, but we're not doing great, and we can always we can always do better exactly. in everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're still going to make mistakes. Things are bad. Things are still going to happen. Yeah. But we're going to keep learning from them and acknowledging. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I always like to wind down on like a positive message because <laughs> I think that's important. So I would ask, what would you like to say to possible victims and survivors that are listening today? Um, you know, what I often find myself saying in trainings is if you are sitting with something and you're not sure what to do with it and, um, you know, it's something, a, a violence you've experienced, something you know somebody else has experienced, um, reach out and seek help. There's a lot of really wonderful resources through the Vermont Network. Um, you know, if you're a guard member, please absolutely reach out to myself um, or our, our wing SARC. Serena Fernari is also an amazing sexual assault response coordinator. Um, we'll walk the path with you. I mean, all, advocates through the network, advocates through um, the guard, it's confidential resourcing. Um, and we'll walk the path and we'll take the time. And it's not about knowing what you want to do at the end of the day. It's not saying I'm going to come and I'm going to report this thing and and this person's going to have, it's not about knowing how it's all going to play out. Just if you are sitting with something, please know you're not alone and that there's support services out there and they will be with you and sit with you and hold space with you and walk the path with you with whatever it is you choose. Yeah, absolutely. Because it is yeah. your choice. Yeah, absolutely. But you are not alone. No. No. Well, thank you so much for being here today, yeah. Nikki. Um, if you want to learn more about Vermont Sapper program, you can simply Google 158, 158th Air Wing Vermont SAPR, and that will take you to their page. Um, that does it for us this week, people. If you have any questions or ideas for the show, you can always email me, Anna, at standupresources.com. Thank you so much for being here on The Men, sponsored by the Center for Crime Victim Services of Vermont. Be well. See you next time. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or feedback. We love hearing new topic ideas from listeners and watchers as well. Thank you for listening to The Mend and be well.